Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So a couple of days ago from us recording this podcast, uh, I was seated on the couch watching the London Marathon and boy oh boy did we get some amazing action at that event and uh, it was a race that had a multiple levels of interest for me. First of all it was the watching the elite race, both the men and the women. Of course my son was also running and he did 3 hours 10 minutes which I think he'd be very pleased with and I think it was a very impressive start to his marathon career. Um, but uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about more the details regarding the, the winners of that event and uh, how the changing guard of marathon running internationally pretty much changed overnight at the London Marathon this year. So uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, before we get into the details of that and discuss it, um, let's uh, take our eye towards the court myers. And uh, Professor Ross Tucker, as usual, here with me, got a couple of big ones. And there's a big story brewing, of course, in the world of uh, of doping. But uh, before we get onto that one, there's a couple of others you've been picking up on our patron site. Yep, thanks. Yeah, and a couple that I saw, actually. One of them came to me via Twitter. And it was from Benji Nason, who does a lot of cycling analysis on Twitter, if you're interested. But he sent a link to an article that I wanted to talk to you about very quickly. You remember that we've discussed already this year ketones and performance mm-hmm. and then bicarbonate and performance. Yes. So And Yamba Visma's use of it. Allegedly both. Allegedly. And, and the, the bicarb came out because that company that made the carb mm. drink that was so heavily marketed and so to our yeah, mm. Morton or Merton or whatever they've now got a bicarb drink that drink or, or gel sachet that uses the same technology to in a sense protect the bicarb from the gut because the, the the problem with bicarb was always it made you throw up a lot so even mm. though it had these alleged buffering benefits so, not, so, not good for TV throwing up yeah. no that, that tends not to happen on the screen um <laughs> So what, what happened was he shared this link, and it's quite cool because it's like one of those crossovers, you know, like when, when you get like a mix of two things. Because a study was published talking about the potential compounding effects of bicarbonate and ketones. It came out in 2021, actually, so it's not super recent. Title being, Bicarbonate Unlocks the Ergogenic Action of Ketone Monoester Intake in Endurance Exercise. So what they did in this study, having done some work before on ketones, they found that if you took ketones during exercise in the early part of a three and a half hour, say, cycling race simulated in the lab, it lowered the pH in the bicarbonate without affecting performance. So they said, well, maybe these two things interact with one another. So they did a study in which they hypothesized that the acid-base disturbances called by ketones overrule the ergogenic potentials um, erg- ergogenic potential of exogenous ketosis in endurance exercise. So 
what you get from, in other words, what they're saying there is that you, you might gain something from ketones, but you also lose something on the flip side of that. Mm-hmm. So they said, well, what if we combine ketones and bicarbonate? So then we cancel out the negative effect and we leave behind only the positive. Make sense? Mm-hmm. So they did this study and admittedly, it's only on nine cyclists. The significance of this will become clear shortly. Who did a similar thing. It's a three-hour submax intermittent cycling followed by a 15-minute time trial preceding an all-out sprint. So it's kind of like simulating what would happen in a cyclist. And in some trials, they just had ketones. In other trials, they just had bicarb. And then in the third one, they had a combination of these, all compared to a control where they just had placebo and a carbohydrate. And what they found is that when you combine them, the performance benefit is greater than when each one is taken by itself. So Time to exhaustion in the sprint was similar in all conditions. Gastrointestinal conditions were similar. Um, But they find, and I just wanted to find this uh, significant sentence for you. Additional bicarbonate resulted in a higher blood beta-hydroxybutyrate. That's greater ketone levels during the first half. And increased blood bicarbonate levels. The mean power output was similar between them, but was 5% higher in the ketone plus bicarbonate. So it seemed that the two had a benefit where the one alone did not. Okay. And so it's not, the reason it piqued my interest is because I remember hearing that some of the teams had been experimenting with asthma drugs and other meds. There was one legal medication, no effect. Another one, no effect, but A plus B equals effect. And so I'd heard the teams were experimenting and I got to thinking that I wonder whether the combined effect of ketones and bicarbonates is what's actually causing elite cyclists to find some benefit that lab studies in the past looking at one or the other maybe necessarily haven't found. So you think that Pretty interesting. the elite cyclists are using that combination already? Well, we know that, for instance, Yamba are because they were oh, yes. Yes, true. early adopters of ketones and then presumably among other teams, the using the bicarbonate. Remember that's that funny We don't know if they're having them together. Pre- you, yeah. would, you t- would you take them at the same time or would well, you take the, them as two That's what the study is suggesting mm-hmm. and that's what I wonder if, if something like that's happening. Hmm. So it's, a, it's kind of like, oftentimes science looks at one thing because it wants to be systematic and simple, no confounders. But sometimes the confounders are the source of the benefits. You know what I mean? Like mm. it's, and I wonder whether this is an example. I don't know what they're doing. It might be that they're not doing it this way. And again, this is only nine people and it was in 2021. Maybe there are studies currently on the go in larger groups and better athletes because we've always discussed what happens in an elite cyclist is quite different from someone like us who's very far from our ceiling compared to them. <laughs> so, yeah, it's an interesting one that you you might be able to, you know, and, and, and we've often spoken about this. You, you, you might gain 2%, but you lose 2% from the same thing because there are little trade-offs. And the clever combination of those things eliminates the downside and leaves only the upside behind. And that seems to be this. So the discussion, the conclusion in the abstract here is the co-ingestion of oral bicarbonates and ketones enhances high-intensity exercise performance at the event at the end of an endurance exercise event without causing gastrointestinal distress. We don't know what the levels of that ingestion is, do we? I mean, they don't sort of mention how much bicarb there is, how many ke- how much ketones. No, they do. They do. do 65, they? Okay. Yeah, 65 grams of ketone. Uh, 300 milligrams per kilogram body weight bicarb, which is a lot. And then, say, and that was always lot, the yeah. problem with the bicarb was mm. to get the benefit, you had to take so much that you're almost guaranteed to be ill. Mm. In this study, they're saying there was no gastrointestinal distress. And so, mm. and that's the, that's the promise Morton has made with respect to that technology as well. 
So having set that up, then what happened is Renato Canova, who's a regular on Patreon, sent me a link in which Inigo San Milan, who you'll know is the coach of Pogaccia, right? Yep. The headline of this article is, if it improved performance, it would cure cancer. Pogacar coach debunks bicarb benefits. Right. So, so this guy's come out and says, like many supplements that don't work, they tend to resurface 20 to 30 years later. And he's absolutely said like that these things won't make any difference. The article goes on to talk about the bicarbonate hit headlines when it was linked to Yumbo Visma's run of success. And then it mentions the new product from Morton. And then San Milan has gone a step further and said, that bicarb per se it says bicarb is one of the oldest supplements out there it's been used for decades like many supplements that don't work they tend to resurface 20 to 30 years later and then he goes on to explain why he doesn't believe it can have an effect because he's saying that that blood ph is so tightly regulated that and there's already enough bicarbonate in the system that when you add more you're not really giving the body any capacity to change any more than it already could have done mm-hmm. you know and uh, he talks about our body having this large pool of bicarb and that the pH in the muscle can drop because of the acidosis of exercise. But the bicarb in the blood doesn't reach that muscle in order to neutralize that. So, And when you read the studies, they measure the bicarb level in the blood. And that's the study I just read, for instance, does that. <laughs> so he's absolutely certain that this thing wouldn't make a difference. He reckons if it could get into the cells in this way, it would be beneficial for cancer because Apparently, one of the things cancer does is it lowers the pH of the cells. <laughs> so, right there you go. So, whether this is I'm all sure some, part some, of the fog of war in the pro peloton, mm-hmm. I don't know. But there you go. I'm sure some supplement company will be uh, looking at that and saying, "Well, I'm sure we can create some marketing speak around this and sell a lot of products as a result of this." Um, yeah, know, yeah, whether it works or not. Extra, extra penetrable bicarb that gets <laughs> into the ours gets into the muscle. This yeah, doesn't or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny though because I I always thought bicarb did work, and the only reason it wasn't more widely used was because of that unpleasant side effect of. Mm. gastrointestinal and vomiting and nausea. Is that when people take Rennie's, for instance? I think Rennie's is a globally relevant and yeah. acid for the stomach. I mean, that's but a they, sort of bicarb, isn't so, it? See, oh, but the thing is, like, and we spoke about it when we discussed the bicarb, you have to take so much of it, like mm. 300 milligrams. In that study, for instance, 300 milligrams per kilogram body weight is a ton of bicarb. Mm. I mean, that's like all the Rennie's you've got. make a cake with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so much that actually it would be impossible to consume. So, mm. yeah, people do you do use the Rennie's, but this is this is like now a mega yeah. dose, right? People swear by Rennie's. I mean, I know lots of people who... Yeah, but even for long, cramps and things yeah, like that. And, yeah. 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 But I, the, yeah, I've seen so many studies saying that there's a benefit in high performance, high, high intensity sprint exercise. Mm. But it causes all these. So well, Morton thought that they'd solved. By, you know, Yumbo not doing so well this year, and Pagetch and UAE doing well. This yeah, year. but just, it's funny, like we say, they're not doing so. Well, but up until <laughs> Flanders, speaking. they'd won everything. Yeah, fair enough. So and multiple <laughs> stage races. So, uh, anyways, it was interesting to see those two things side by side. Interesting. Yeah. So thanks, Renato, for yeah, sending that. Nice one. A uh, couple other ones that came in. Pratima, another regular on Patreon, thanks very much, sent us a link to an article that is on a website called My Sports Science, which is maybe well known to some of you. It's run by Aska Jokendrup, whose name oh, yes. is known, especially in the world of nutrition and carbs and supplements, uh, one of the leading researchers in the space. This is an article titled No Evidence to Adapt Training to the Phase of the Menstrual Cycle. And I've told Pratima that we've had it on our agenda for a long time to get someone in to talk about this because 
I don't know anything like enough to trust myself to explain these issues. Mm. So that we, we do have that and I've, I've committed to it. So now I'm committing to everyone <laughs> in the same way. But basically, Asker talks about a study, a review that's just come out led by Lauren Colenzo Semple and Stuart Phillips, in which they've reviewed the evidence for claims that women must adapt training because the menstrual cycle might affect their response in this instance to strength training. It's often argued that the menstrual cycle in which stage you're in might either dampen or amplify what you get as an adaptation to strength training. Mm. And I'll jump straight to the conclusion of the paper in the author's words. When reviewing the evidence as a whole and the methodological shortcomings therein, we propose it is highly premature to conclude that short-term fluctuations in ovarian hormones influence acute exercise performance or even long-term adaptations to resistance training. Therefore, the development of resistance training, resistance exercise training prescriptions based on cyclical hormonal changes is not an evidence-based approach. So that's, that's pretty strong at this stage for saying that right now there is no basis on which you would change how women do resistance training compared to men because of the menstrual cycle, mm. which is interesting because it's widely known and there's no doubt that women's physiology is massively under-researched mm. in terms of injury, performance, and specifically how the menstrual cycle affects those things. You know, I don't know if you've heard that menstrual function is linked to the risk of severe knee injuries, ACL injuries. But the evidence on it is all a little bit sketchy because they're so rare. Like an ACL injury is like one or two a season in a tournament, you know, if mm. that. So drawing conclusive links between menstrual function and injury and menstrual function performance is quite difficult. So what this paper has said is that at this point, there's no evidence for it. Now, that doesn't mean that we should take away that they are the same. It just means that it's not yet known and there's no evidence on which to do it. And the reason I think it's interesting is even in the in the rugby world where I'm in now, the one of, one of World Rugby's six pillars of growth, its strategy is women's rugby and mm. particularly player welfare and health so we have a women's rugby research group we have a women's concussion working group we've got all sorts of research studies dedicated to women's player welfare concussion injury and so on and there's there's this real push that we have to like reinvent everything for women's player welfare and i actually think you're probably better off assuming that 90 percent of us of, of it is the same in other words there's more similarity than there is difference mm. and if you if you don't understand that, then you're going to go back to the drawing board and you don't actually have to do that. You'd rather want to build on what we already know. And then that 10% is really important, but you don't have to do from 0 to 100. We actually have to get from 90 to 100. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting that there's no evidence at this point for this. So now the question is, will be, well, can we find that evidence in better studies? Yes or no? And then maybe this thing gets updated in a couple of years. So yeah, interesting mm. that Pratima, because I, I have a very strong suspicion that if we spoke to an expert now, other than the experts who wrote this paper, we'd probably be told that women should change their training based on menstrual function. Yeah. It's kind of like the prevailing thought. Yeah, it almost the, makes sense, doesn't yeah, it? This review, yeah, this review argues that right now you're guessing. There's mm -hmm. no evidence on which you would base those decisions, hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, Fascinating one, that. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, just a couple other things, um, just two, two more sort of very brief comments. I don't know if you remember a while back, we were talking about a young golfer who stood golf balls into a washing machine. 
Yes. You, you brought it up. It was, well, it was Tiger Woods that did that. It was, in fact, Rory McIlroy. Oh, it was Rory and McElroy. I only, You're right. I only know that because Peter Lowry sent us a message saying just, he actually sent us something Quite else. Right. A longer comment. And he said, by the way, I'll just tell Mike it's actually Rory McIlroy. That's so correct. I've seen the footage. Oh, yeah. 100% yeah. So There you go. Yes, and thank then you for that. Last one, I was just reminded by Robert Hilliard. We do these caught my eyes at the start of each show because we want to acknowledge the patron support and the dialogue that they give us. One of them, Tra- Travis Hawkins, is going to come up in a moment because he gave me so much cool stuff to read on our next topic. But Robert said, um, you know, he wants to know where the main topic is. So those of you who listen to our show and want to jump straight to the main topic, Mike is now putting mm. the time that the main topic starts in the show notes. So if you just scroll down, you'll see something saying skip to yes. 35, 12 for the main topic. So, yeah, that's to save you this, the hassle of having to skip, skip, skip and Correct. then go back and forth. So thanks, Robert, for reminding me of that. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, just thanks to all the rest of you for your comments. There's a couple of others. Ian and Paulie B got in touch with a, a, a model for anti-doping from the world of mixed martial arts. It's a nice article from the BBC, but I'm going to park that until our next show, and then we can go into that in some more detail. And that is it from the the world of patron for this week. The (laughs) next caught my eye is actually yours. Yeah, so this came up um, through multiple different sources, some of them on Instagram, one or two people who messaged me and um, sort of explained that there was this big story brewing. And it comes from the world of uh, long-distance triathlon, and it's the story of American Colin Chartier, who was uh, caught with EPO and given a three-year ban. And you kind of say, well, we've had that before, and we've seen in athletics and that sort of thing, but what makes this case different? Well, first of all, he's a very high-profile American triathlete, and it really did rock the world of uh, triathlon, and many triathletes that I follow on Instagram reacted to it in some shape or form. And uh, he's went, then went on, he's completely taken responsibility for it to some extent. We'll discuss to, to what extent he did do that. He's been on a podcast, which will uh, which will show, play some of those clips just now. But he really does come out. He admits he did it. He then talks a little bit about why he did it and the process of doing it. So he kind of comes clean more than I've seen many other sports people who have been caught for drugs have admitted. And we're so used to seeing sports people around the world getting caught and then they're denying it and discovering all sorts of reasons why they didn't take it or why the test is wrong. Colin Chartier takes it on the chin and completely admits that he did it and explains why he did it and, of course, um, explains even how he got the substance that he is to take it. So it's an interesting one, but it, it has really hurt the world of long-distance triathlon because to some extent he's also implicated and said that the top level it is happening and it's rife he believes even though he doesn't have any evidence for that yeah and, and you know I, I hadn't heard of the guy or the case until you messaged me mm. and then coincidentally the it came up on patron and it was specifically travis hawkins i mentioned earlier said have you seen it and if you haven't let me send you some links and so of course he did and he sent me a couple of links to podcasts to Twitter accounts to Instagram posts and so on. So then I got the crash course. It saved me a lot of time. Thanks, Travis. Really appreciate it. And yeah, you know, it, 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 quite, it reminded me quite a lot of the Zane Robertson confession, mm-hmm. the podcast interview he did. This is a New Zealander. Yeah, yep. we, we covered that a, little dis- a couple of episodes back. Yeah. Um, difference being that this Colin Chartier guy didn't sound anything like as emotionally upset by his ban as mm. as Robertson did but many of the elements are the same you know and it's like there are recurring themes in in the world of doping because he's he's very much saying I'm a lone wolf and in fact the the 
podcast that I'll provide a link to in the show notes is called How They Train. It's a podcast with a guy called Jack Kelly and their like sort of core offering is they interview these very famous triathlon athletes, triathletes, and they talk to them about their training and their lifestyle and their nutrition and all sorts of things. It's cool insight actually. So I gave it a listen and I must say, Kelly asks him all the right questions. It's a good interview. He, he asks him at least three or four times to stand behind his assertion that he acted alone. He literally says to him, I don't think anyone's going to believe you. How can we believe that you acted alone? And every single time, Chatia says, well, I absolutely do. Um, I absolutely did. Like it, I, I looked it up on the internet myself. I bought it on the internet myself. I administered it. I spoke to nobody, not my coach, not fellow athlete, nobody, all by myself. Now, I don't know what your take is on that. I mean, I, 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 find, it, I find it very difficult to believe that a person whose life is 30 hours a week worth of training and who probably is micromanaged by a team of people would not at some point confide in one of those people. I think there's, I mean, to his, maybe to his um, credit here, taking that and explaining that does make sense to me that he, you know, he sort of talks about the disappointment of the people around him in his admittance here. So there's obviously a lot of shame involved in the process and the decision to, to take the to take the, the dope. But, you know, it, it does make sense to me that he potentially can hide it and why, and he could hide it. I mean, you could certainly get the stuff online and we know mm. that you can do that and you can take it on. And who's to know the people around him, even his parents yeah. might not know he's taking it. And, and it's just fact, a shame to admit it. In fact, one of the links Travis provided me to is in a Twitter account at Tim Hemming, journalist who covers triathlon. And Tim Hemming, latest tweet literally 33 minutes ago as i'm sitting here reading this to you interesting theses from marymount university hemoglobin hematocrit and body composition status of collegiate triathlon and cross-country athletes during the competitive season guess who the the student was (laughs) yes i'm guessing it's our it's our it's our colin chartier indeed it was right okay so that's that's really interesting um (laughs) so 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 clearly he's had some exposure to the world of blood parameters mm. so so i it, it is possible i remember once i was in eugene for u.s olympic trials and i was having a drink with a guy called dan faff who's a very famous sprints coach and he coached bailey among other guys obedeli thompson and i remember saying to him like who's the who's the most who's the athlete you've got the most confidence in that was absolutely clean and he said i can't have confidence in any athlete mm-hmm. so even your own he says how like 15 hours a day, they're in their own home, their own bathroom, their own kitchen. I'm not there. I can't see what that athlete has done. And mm-hmm. so it is It is possible for a person to go and do it themselves. I just, I think more often than not, you wouldn't be alone. Mm. And, and then the other thing that came up again on Tim Hemming's uh, Twitter timeline is in response to a post by Hemming in which he again talks about Colin as the lead researcher with Dr. Michael Nordvall studying hemoglobin, hematocrits, and anthropometric alterations. He's responsible for design, collection, and statistical analysis. The first reply to that post is Steve Magnus, who's one of the famous whistleblowers against Salazar. And and in the podcast with Kelly, Chatia talks about how, and it was actually really interesting, he says, I'd used gateway substances to doping before. Did you Did you pick that up? Mm. He says, I, I'd used L-carnitine injections, which are strictly illegal, but I was using that. And then it made it easier for me to move to EPO. And Magnus picks that up and 
says it's almost certainly had help on some of this and isn't being transparent. He took L-carnitine injections. These have to be specially compounded by a specialty pharmacy. No way he didn't have help. Hmm. So there is there is more to this, you see, and then that's yeah yeah that's uh, interesting yeah. yeah so so two two interesting things one is magnus's comment and secondly is the the alcarnitine remember that was what salazar was infusing in massive doses it's allegedly what pharaoh was getting from mm. a doctor in england and i didn't know that it was specialty made as an injection but there you go so there you go so maybe he had to have had some support mm. and well, then the other yeah the, the other bit that again people are going like come on man Oh, by the way, did you see Sebastian Keenly's um, reply to Chartier's Instagram post? Well, obviously himself a great uh, long-distance triathlete. I think I won Ironman. 2014 or something, yeah, I think it was, yeah, if I remember correctly. And he basically came on, again, it's covered in the podcast mm. I'll link to. He basically came on, let me guess, you did this alone, you had no support, no one else knew, it was all on you. So mm. nobody really believes him. And when you read the comments to Chartier's Instagram confession, mm. you'll see the same theme come up over and over. It's like, you, if you don't disclose everything, there's no forgiveness and there's no possibility of redemption for you, which is not dissimilar to the Robertson case, right? Yeah. Um, I suppose to some extent it's just a case of not wanting to sink their fellow competitors in their own right. confession. Which, which, which that, brings me to the big paradox in the podcast, but I'll get there in a moment. Mm. I do think... Like, I don't know when Chartier would have gotten his ban. Was it literally like a day or two ago? Yeah, it was about a week ago from us doing the podcast, yeah. And it was the same thing with Robertson appearing on that podcast like a day after he got the seven-year suspension. Mm. So whilst they've had notification of their positive test, the rest of the world didn't. And I think it's too early for them to fully intellectualize, internalize, and then project out what they did and what they were thinking. So mm. with Robertson as well, like he's too too emotional at this moment to actually be asked to come clean. So, and I think it's the same. Mm. These guys need six months to a year. And then I think they should be asked to like, now listen, you need to actually tell us a little bit more here. So what would you, I mean, I'm interested <coughs> to know what, you, if you wanted them to come clean, what would you want to know Well, from Robertson and in this case, Chartier? Well, I, I would like details on if, if you ordered it alone, well, then mm. like show us those orders. Like, so there's got to be some. In other words, what websites did you use and where how did you get you, it? What dosage like, did you get? How much did you pay for it? How was it received? How did you, where did you learn to do it? You know, like, because yeah. if, they, if they can explain that all, then okay, you've got a little bit of credibility in your story. Mm-hmm. But if you can't explain it all, well, then maybe I'm starting to think actually you didn't get it on the internet. I think you, maybe you got it from someone you knew. Mm. So I'd want to explore that and like look into the entourage a little bit more, you know. Mm. There's no doubt. And again, Chartier, because of that background, which I didn't realize, it's funny that he didn't bring his background in research up in the interview when he was asked to justify taking it alone. Because no one believes that a triathlete's going to just figure this out. Because <laughs> he's got, he's got a, at least some basis to claim that, right? Because mm. he got this qualification mm. studying it. Yeah. Um, but but there's no doubt when you look at the Kenyans that get popped, like mm. they they are not doing this alone. There's, no. there's entourage around them, and I think that needs to be a lot tighter. The problem is that no athlete wants to be a whistleblower because there's actually no incentive for them. No. Like, well, they get complete. I mean, from the people that they that right. know and respect them, they're now going to get completely vilified. Right. So it's a it's a, a double whammy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And. So you, you've got to you've got to offer quite a large reward to overcome that mm. double whammy. Mm. Floyd Landis, you see, didn't care. 
Mm. He lost all interest in being liked and popular because mm. he was already to some degree excluded and vilified. Now he's so, a cannabis farmer. So, so he said, uh, <laughs> he said, I'm just going to burn this thing down because they've locked me inside it. So I'm going to burn everything down with them mm. as well. You know what I mean? So, so like that's a different circumstance, but these guys never want to talk about the, mm. how they go about it. And for me, the most interesting thing about this, this Chartier interview is he's asked by Kelly why. Like says, no, he says to him, literally, no bullshit. Just tell me why. And I don't know if we want to play the, the yeah. little clip in, but you'll hear his answer to that is um, is quite interesting because it invites a degree of almost cognitive dissonance, in my opinion. So let's let's hear from him in his own voice, and then after that, we'll talk about maybe what I think is the disconnect here. Colin, answer me this with no bullshit. Why did you dope? Like, why EPO? What what got you there? What got you that to that ultimate point? I hear you say like, you know, you wanted to win the big races and you felt pressure, but I just, I just don't feel like you're you're telling me everything. Like, tell me everything. Why? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know why I felt this pressure or, or believed this, but I really wanted to win this year and and, and beat the best in the sport. And at the end of the day, like I. I don't know. I, I don't believe they're clean. And if I'm going to try to win, like, there's no amount of self, you know, self-belief I can have in myself if, if, if I believe the top guys are doping. And I think it's sad that I came to this decision. Um, and, I, and I don't have any evidence that top guys are. It's just the, the belief I had, and that's what ultimately led me to choosing to dope. Yeah, so kind of uh, almost a sad resignation for for him sort of saying, well, I I had to do it to be competitive because he believes that everybody is taking performance-enhancing drugs. Which is almost exactly, remember that Zane Robinson said, and Mm. I'm almost, I think I'm quoting from his interview exactly, said I was tired of getting my ass kicked every week by guys I knew were doping, so therefore Mm. I don't. So that's what what they feel, right? Now, Mm. what's interesting there is he says, I believed they were doping, would and and of course the answer to this is yes but it's amazing to think that a guy who has come and this is the other bit that i think most people are being almost incredulous and and aggressive towards him about is he won a massive race in september was mm. it hundred thousand dollar prize us open i think it was and then he says he only started doping a month or two after that and people are saying come on man pull the other one that's not that's not on mm. um it's 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 for a top guy to to start doing something that he must realize carries with it so much risk and that he's taking on himself and he knows is wrong based only on suspicion doesn't seem to me to be all that believable i think he knows that there's doping it's not just but he's 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 watered it down well he's obviously convinced that there is doping. exactly he's, he's, sure. he's not he's not just i think they might be i better do it too mm. he's like i know mm. And therefore, I'm going to, I believe it. So mm. he's going to do it. And he kind of doubles down on that later on. Kelly, once again, gives him an opportunity to talk about it. And he, you'll hear it mm. now again. He goes into it in even more detail. But again, listen to how he, he wants to soften it. I have no evidence. I don't know this for sure. He's evasive about why he did it and, and what his process was by which he created this belief, this, as you say, convinced 
He convinced himself that they were doping based on what? Lance Armstrong? He literally talks like that. Yeah, he does. Yeah. It's, it's just soft, you know? It comes across quite soft to me. Mm. Well, let's listen to that second bit because he talks specifically and gets asked the question whether or not um, he knows of any athletes that have taken performance enhancing drugs. So that's, and again, a very tragic answer. Colin, you, you said that the Norwegians, um, Mikael Eden, your coach, Gustav Eden, Christian Blumenfeld, um, by association, I guess the, the other coaches in their group, like Olav Alexander Boo, you've said definitively they were not involved. They have no knowledge of it. I like to believe that they themselves are clean. Not just speaking about them, Colin, have you ever had any conversations with other professional triathletes that you've trained with um, or talked to either in person or over the phone or on social media about their drug use? Um, do you know of any other professional triathletes in the sport that are currently or have in the past taken performance enhancing drugs? Yeah, I mean, I haven't had any personal uh, conversations with other athletes in the sport about this. Um, I mean, but that's not to, I mean, look, high performance sport across all bodies, like there is incredible suspicion and as you know, as much as I want to believe all the competitors are clean, I also hold the idea that there's suspicion and it's hard to hold both of those together because they're contradictory and I don't know at the end, if I didn't, you know, have suspicions that other athletes were doing it, I would have been less likely to do it. And then you just look at the history of sport in the last 20 years and cycling and land. So all these other sports, it's, it's difficult yeah, to believe in sport. And I know, and I, and I really wish that sport was something that was clean and fun and, and pure because of that, that is what sport should be to be doing it out of pure joy and uh and together with other athletes but i don't know i, I, I don't know i mean we live in a broken world and i'm sorry i added to that okay so now you're let's let's say you're in the interview seat now interviewer seat the journalist mm -hmm. what's the follow-up question to that in your opinion well i suppose you do want to know the details yeah exactly um and you uh, and again he's not incentivized to share the details right. even if he does know them yeah um and having spoken to a couple of elite athletes in my time over the years and those that are on the cusp of being professional and good professional and those kind of sitting in that sort of end zone it's a it's an it's it's a, you hear the, the, the dilemma of those athletes because i still believe that there are seriously great athletes out there that are not taking performance enhancing drugs but there are so many that believe that in order to get to the top you have to do it mm. and unfortunately it's that second tier that are young and rising through the ranks and getting there and believing that unless they do it they're not going to get there and it's 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 this fight i guess between an acceptance and i know for instance because a family member very close to me who was a professional triathlete gave up the sport because one of his heroes that he was training with in the, at the time that he was at his peak he discovered that one of his heroes was taking performance enhancing drugs just by the you know just casually mentioned it and that mm. was the end of his his triathlon career purely because he got so demoralized by the fact that he knew that 
he wasn't going to be at the top level unless he because, did the same, right? Yes, yeah. he, he kind of believed that. So that's clearly the dilemma. And, and when we when we posted the Zane Robertson podcast interview, a lot of people came and said there was a split: some sympathetic, some very unsympathetic towards him. And I, I get that you don't want to be sympathetic towards a doper, but if you don't recognize that is a real dilemma for these guys and women who do these sports, then I don't know that you'll ever solve yeah. the problem. You have to recognize it, even if you don't agree with it. It's there. It's still yeah, sure. it's reality for them. It's reality. So till you. Can address that but the thing i would challenge him on now is in other on other occasions in that interview he spoke about you could test him in the past he, he said you can yes. trust that i was clean before november it was only after that so he's 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 very um he's very willing and, and fast to rely on the testing procedures to clear himself mm. in the past but at the same time he knows by his own telling that all these athletes are doping and how many positives has triathlon had? Well, none. That's why this is such a big story. He's the first like big, big name triathlete to get done this way. So, th- so he almost reveals a, a double standard. I think a little bit. Mm-hmm. He wants he wants testing to exonerate him, but it hasn't exonerated anyone else that he knows is doping. So, what are we to take away from that with regards to the quality of testing? Yeah, I would <laughs> I would say he's either absolutely incorrect that other athletes are doping, which I don't think is the, tr- the case. Or we just have to recognize that other athletes are doping and getting away with it, which means he might have been too. So he's in a, he's in a bit of a bind there. And then I think the other the other area that I think is a little bit inconsistent is, I I, th- I think it's probably, it's in fact, it's almost certainly true, he won't have evidence of other athletes doping. But he's got more than just, I've seen it in cycling and lance to base his belief on, right? That's what we were saying earlier. Is he, he's seen unusual performance improvements in colleagues and and rivals competitors he's seen training sessions by people that he's working with he's heard conversations over dinner like you mentioned your your family member had heard and so he he knows more than just the regular fan knows the the, the athletes know who's dodgy and who's not i mean i've heard as well like guys who say uh, we knew he was was doping six months before he got caught Mm. so they know but until he's willing to tell how he knew and who he knew about, I don't think anyone's going to believe anything else he says. No, no. You, you, you need to come completely clean or not at all. Yeah. He's, he seems to me to be wanting to have it halfway. <laughs> well, I'm walking away I'm, now. I, I guess I'm less cynical about him. I, I, I do feel, a, a, as I did with Robertson, feeling a little bit you know, sympathetic towards their cause, even though it's not forgivable. It certainly, as you yeah. just said, you have to understand the pressure that these guys are under. And I often take the example of an athlete where many of these athletes grow up at school level and, and better, and sometimes in countries where socioeconomically this is also an incentive, mm. where the only thing you have is the sport that you're participating in. It's the only thing you're good at. It's the only thing you potentially can make money out of. And suddenly somebody says to you, well, unless you're doping, you're not going to win any money and make a living and put right. food on the table. That's an incentive Massive. to say, well, I want to push. I need to push the limits here as much as I can because it is no longer a fair slate here for yeah, anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And remember on the Robertson podcast, I think we agreed that we are yeah. enormously sympathetic to that dilemma. Yeah. yeah. And we can one can point to your family member who, who said, no, I'm walking away, or to yeah. Christophe It wasn't Moreau. an easy decision, I you can know, tell you. Uh, remember Lance spoke about that French cyclist to the peloton called Mr. Clean because he was the only guy in the peloton who wasn't taking stuff. <laughs> And eventually he got almost forced into retirement by the speed of the race. He was just mm. getting battered off the back every race. Moreau, mm. I think it was, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah, there are guys who say, no, I will not do this. But most of them, 
at the age of, I don't know what this Colin guy is, but in their mid to late 20s, early 30s, there's no fallback plan. So they proceed because they feel it's necessary to proceed. Mm. So I'm not talking about that per se. I'm, I'm talking more about after the fact. Are you willing to now come clean and try and explain exactly what it's like in that world? And again, I, I know why they don't do it. Because A, they're scared. And B, they're trying to be decent. Mm. Like, why should I sink everyone? We were all in the same predicament. This this unbelievable, like, Catch-22, Hobson's Choice material. Um, so I'm not going to talk. But that's that's the thing that will get them forgiveness, as it were, from the community, is if they did it. Yeah. But he'd, he'd be sued yeah. because he doesn't have evidence. So if, yeah. he, if he says, you know, I was really suspicious of some of those Norwegians, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's a goner financially. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the system has to try and protect him against mm. that, but still figure out what he knows. Yeah. That's yeah. the key. Yeah. 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 Anyway, let us know what you think about uh, this particular story. If you're involved in the world of triathlon, I'm sure it is a big story. And well, as we have discovered, it is a big story in many ways, not just in the world of triathlon. So uh, that is the story of Colin Chartier. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right, so enough of the bad news. Let's focus on some of the more extraordinary performances, and as we alluded to at the start of the podcast, um, this pre this last weekend uh, from us recording today, we watched the London Marathon, the TCS London Marathon, and uh, lots of things to be excited about. And what happened there was not what I expected to happen because so we don't necessarily think of London as the sort of Berlin World Marathon course um, in terms of times, but it certainly produced. Uh, the, the, the most amazing result in, in, in Calvin Kiptum, who for the second year in a row won the London, London Marathon in the second fastest time ever um, for, a, for a marathon distance and just outside the record of uh, Elliot Kipchoge. And I must be honest, I didn't, I never heard about this guy until I was doing the research around London Marathon and watching it before the race um, because he's, you know, he's a relatively newcomer. But the second fastest marathon, 201.25, 17 seconds away from Kipchoge's world record. And that included a negative split of 59.45. So in other words, he ran the second half of that race in 59 minutes and 45 seconds, <laughs> which is just absolutely... And I'll give you some more of the stats a bit, uh, a bit later on. But it was one of those... And we'll talk a bit about the women's performance there as well and talk about particularly Evans Chibet in the, in, in, in the Boston Marathon. But... Just when you think that everybody's talking about Ilya Kipchoge, he doesn't perform at Boston, and then suddenly there's Ilya Kipchoge 2.0 coming out of nowhere, 23 years of age, and suddenly everybody's talking about this new guy, Calvin Kipton. Yeah, the, you know, so no one really had heard of Kipton until about November last year. When was Valencia? Yeah, it was late. It was like late. It's late, it was in, late the, in the maybe year. Maybe in yeah. December. Yeah. And then he ran the fastest debut ever. Yeah, number and, two and one. That was the same pattern as this because he, he started relatively slowly and ran what at that stage was the fastest half of a legitimate marathon. Like yeah. I'm not counting the, the gimmicks of Kipchoge now again. 
so he's basically repeated the same pattern twice and improved by 20 odd seconds the, the, the debut was 201.53 and mm-hmm. now it's 201.25 and le- legitimately if he'd gone 5k earlier he'd, he'd go into that world record because mm-hmm. he was running 3-4 seconds a k faster than his average pace for that surge so again notwithstanding the fact that he was maybe right on the limit by the end he, yeah. that, that world record's now well in reach and he spoke I saw an interview with him at the finish line saying he thinks it's a couple more years I think it's now <laughs> and everybody agrees with you I, I, yeah like it seems very clear that it's now the only thing is in my not admittedly like with this level of athlete the world's maybe never seen this level of athlete or performance mm. some guys just can't run even splits they have to do negative splits mm. you know like for them they almost need to be conservative and then unleash something but in my mind, if you've got the ability to run a 59.45 on the way to a 201.25. In the second half. In the second half. You should, you should go out in 60.20. Yeah. You should go out in 60.20, 60.30, and you'll break 201. You should do that. Yeah. It's possible Kipton can't because for whatever reason, he just needs to hold something back and feel like he's accelerating and running faster in the, in the second half. But in London, they went through halfway in, in 61.40. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it, it just, and uh, it just take, taking it back to that, the, the first 5K split was 14.30, which was 16 seconds off the same split, split, same split by Kipchoge. In Berlin, when he in broke Berlin. the world record. So he was, he was a relatively slow start. Yeah, the whole, the whole first half is slow. Yes. Yeah. 61.40 is like nowadays it's routine. Yes. That men's marathon looked like it was ambling towards a typical mm. but average finish. Mm. And then, and then, mm. <laughs> then he runs a, a 14.30 from 25 to 30, and then he drops a 13.49 yeah. and a 14.01. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's like a, it's unbelievable, maybe, mm. literally. Mm. <laughs> and, and then closes in 2.50 a K over the last 2.2 to scare what at halfway was inconceivable. Yeah. It's just incredible. And... Yeah, I, I, I don't know what to what you make of it. I mean, it's yeah. just it's just amazing. Some of the interesting stats um, from that is that from the initial five kilometer splits that were around 2041, 2060, 20.69 kilometers an hour, eventually in the second half was running 21.7. And in the closing stages, Kipton, uh, Kipton's 35 to 40 kilometer split was 1401, which was 42 seconds faster than Kipchoge's equivalent split. Which is incredible no, that pace just, of the race. So that that's not just a small difference. That's a significantly big difference and over the, just five k. And the conditions were not really that good. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think like normally we know like okay, coolish and and rainy, a lot of water on the ground. We know like objectively that's not good. But when you compare, mm. for instance, the guy who finished just out of the off the podium was a guy Gabriel Selassie of Ethiopia finished fourth, mm. also halfway in sixty one forty, ended up running two hundred five forty five. So that's a sixty four minute second half. Mm. And when you look at where where um, Kipton was running splits from thirty five to forty, sorry thirty to thirty five, and thirty five to forty, Kipton ran thirteen forty nine fourteen oh one. Gabriel Selassie was hitting 15.20 and 15.54. So he, lost, he lost almost two minutes every 5K in the last 10K. Yeah. And, and, and that was the guy who finished fourth. Like, yes. There were guys who didn't and even make he, the top a, eight. He's a class athlete on his own, right. former Olympic champion so, over 10,000. Yeah. So to put that time, like that's how superior he was on the day. And that, it's, mm. 
It's yeah, I, I, it's it's mind-boggling actually. There's some, there's some classic splits here. They talk about the fact that um, that half marathon time, that fifty-nine forty-five, is only thirteen seconds slower than Mo Farah's ratified British half marathon record. Hmm. <laughs> it's uh, it's. I think it might be faster than ours in South Africa. <laughs> that probably is. Yeah, I was yeah. at the, the. There's been a series of middle distance races held in Greenpoint lately, mm. and on when was it Monday night? Yes, there, there was an recently. attempt at the SA record. And he ran twenty seven fifty odd, which is okay, decent going. But like, this is not that far off that. Yeah, between thirty and forty k of a marathon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just you know, no. it is it is quite something. Right? And it so there's two things that I I like to hear your sort of thoughts on. First of all, his age, twenty three yeah. years of yeah. age, relatively new to the sport of distance running. Um, well, first, th- your comment on that. I mean, we, we don't see, are we seeing young marathon runners? Yeah, it's, it's changed. Eh? Like, remember when I studied, the, the conventional wisdom was you did your time on the track, and as you mm. ran the speed out of your legs, you made a shift to the marathon in your late 20s, mm. and then you figured that it would take you three or, three or four goes at the marathon to get your best time. Correct. And in fact, there was data on that showing that at that point, most athletes, and this was actually true of any level, would run their best marathon either in race four or five. So they would get faster from one to two to three to four, and then they'd start getting slower again, five, six, seven, eight. Now you're seeing guys come in at early 20s, Mm. so five years before they used to. They don't take four or five races to figure it out. They're running two or twos, (laughs) two or ones in this guy's case, almost right away. And okay, yeah. maybe this guy's actually going to get faster and run his fifth marathon. He'll run two hours and twenty seconds. Mm. And then, and then they also seem there also seems to be greater longevity than before. Okay, Kip Sang's career ended in disgrace with doping, but he'd run a dozen marathons and he was still competitive in Berlin. Kipchoge's done easily twelve now, more than that, I reckon. Yeah. So they have these very long careers and they start considerably younger. Mm. And so. What used to be like a an optimum Goldilocks zone, you know, not too old, not too young, now seems to be you can start whenever you want and you can go for as long as you're hungry and want to. You see, the reason why it's I asked that question is that when you talk about the fact that that conventional wisdom of being a track runner, you look at people like Haley Gabriel Lassie, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, he exactly. was another one of those guys who went from being a great track runner to, you know, being a great marathon runner. It doesn't make sense to me how a 23-year-old can literally come out of nowhere. Now, just giving you a bit of an idea, well, his first international race was in 2019, which was the 10K, where he finished second. Later that year, he competed in Sweden's uh, half marathon, where he finished sixth. And his first five, five half marathons later, he took the first win at an event in 2019. And of course, in 2021, we've touched on the Valencia marathon. But there's not a lot of history there hmm. in terms of the quality no. of his speed. It just seems so incredibly raw. <laughs> yeah. and untrained that it's it's like pagacha like in cycling well, it's, terms it's definitely trained it's trained it's yes. definitely it's definitely trained and and i mean this is why to, to refer to the conversation we had before this year main topic began uh, and i joked to, with you on a in a group chat on sunday like if he makes it to the start line in berlin without being coming one of the latest Kenyan statistics on the, mm. on the doped list. Yeah. That's the problem now. So, so that. like that has, you have to recognize that when guys come out of nowhere yeah. and they're not in the testing it's pool worrying. and they suddenly emerge and we've seen a number of athletes, more on the women's side in Kenya, which is interesting. Mm. We've seen it before. So I wouldn't 
Yeah, I'm always suspicious. You know, I'm a bit of a suspicious, cynical guy. But 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 I think the other thing that's happening is they're like, why must I bother with a track? The Diamond League only caters to 5,000. That maybe this guy knows the best he's ever going to run a 5,000 is 12.56 and come sixth. <laughs> mm. But I can go straight to the marathon and make how much? How much? Six Mid six figures? Dollars? Yeah, yeah. You must have made Four, a lot of money in London. dollars yeah, For sure. Horse but records. You make, you make that just to start Berlin. Mm. Break a world record, sponsor bonuses, course record. You're going to make two million over the next two years. Mm. So why must I delay Mm. that and so that's why they're going in so young I think and you see it not, it's not new remember Sammy Wanjiro won the Olympic marathon at the age of 22 in 2008 and so you already Martin Lal was straight into the marathon yeah didn't have a track yeah. background and so on so you see Turgat Gabriel Selassie these guys you say okay that's the way you do it but not not anymore mm. yeah, and do you think it's, do you think it's in other words I guess my question is putting aside the fact that we have a sometimes a cynical view of these things, mm. it is feasible because for me, it feels like such a stretch to come from relative obscurity to the big time with so little experience. Is it, is it just pure utter out, out of the, out of this world talent that brings them into that space? Because you have to surely learn the pace, learn and understand your body, learn nutrition, all those sort of things. There's lots of things you have to know about mm. running a marathon. Well, maybe maybe not for him. <laughs> maybe not for maybe not for a few. Look at the women's race. Mm. Stephen Hassan hadn't oh, yeah. allegedly been practicing drinks. She had to at one point make a ninety degree turn <laughs> yes. to reach the drinks table because she almost overshot it. Mm. And she said she wasn't familiar with any of those patterns and so on. And I don't know. I, I but then when, you see, she's got the class of the track. So for yeah. her, being a ten thousand, five thousand meter specialist and 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 having performed in got all the medals at that level coming to the marathon she's got yeah, yeah the credibility that's true you, so you you've know got, you've got some pedigree yeah there. you've got some pedigree Gabriel Selassie had the same and remember his first London marathon was a relative failure because he didn't drink and replace energy so he got hypoglycemic that was his story anyway mm. his telling of it um, <laughs> the the I've lost my train of thought yeah uh, okay so dope remember okay doping aside which I'm sure contributes to some not all Kenyan dominance the thing they got in Kenya now is like generations worth of acquired wisdom. And I think that they all train and communicate together. And there's so much intellectual capital about how to run marathons and how to prepare for them and so on. That I think they're on accelerated curves compared to what they would have been even 15, 20 years ago. Mm. So I think you could offer that in defense of how these guys enter the marathon at 202 level. There's no apprenticeship here. They're just straight in at that mm. ability. And you know, it's, okay, again, setting aside now the, the other dark, darker cynical side, I do think that they are so well prepared by the competitive nature of training in Kenya that they can come in and just run it as if it's what they're familiar with, you know? Mm. I wonder if there's also so, an element, uh, uh, almost the Roger Bannister effect, where you've got a Kipchoge who did a, a manufactured sub, sub two minute. They're seeing Kipchoge as a 37 year old running. 201 and running the world record the mindset goes well okay here's a 37 year old Kenyan who can do this so maybe going sub 201 is very possible yeah. therefore it opens up the floodgates of possibility yeah and, and there's no doubt that remember the sport's been recalibrated A by the shoes for sure and, bit about that and as well. B by the by the target yeah so in the absence of either they probably wouldn't be running where they are right 
mm-hmm. but they've got a target of 201. It was two years ago, 202, right? When, when was when was the first sub-202? It was Kipchoge running 201.30 something, right? That was probably before COVID. Yeah, he, that and was then also he did the, was, I think, he did the yeah. 201.09 last year. So, but, but regardless, within the last four years, I think the, the target has moved a minute faster than it would have done. And then the shoes have allowed them to get really close to that target. I, I still maintain guys like Kipchoge are getting a couple of minutes worth in a marathon. Maybe Kipton's the same. Mm. So now all of a sudden it's in reach, whereas before it was just a number. Mm. So I think a combination of those two things is definitely driving it. Mm. And Evans Chibet, I mean, there are a lot of similarities between Evans Chibet. He, of course, won the Boston Marathon for the second year in the row this year. Very similar in terms of the fact that he's never raced on the track. He literally went yeah. from being right on to the road and, and racing the road. And, um, you know, he's competed in lots of international marathons. But he was another one of these young, these relatively new generation of marathon runners who didn't do it the way we expected. So I guess there are multiple examples now. We've at least got two examples of the two top marathon runners in the world now, arguably, who are not from a trap background and are defying and changing the way that we see marathon running. Yeah, and then the guy they've displaced, and I mean, maybe it's premature to say displaced. Maybe Kipchoge comes back and <laughs> maybe he wants to say, I'm going to line up in Berlin and defend my record against Kiptum and Chibet because I would, I would imagine, but maybe Berlin doesn't have the money to pay for all three. But that would be certainly the one, two, and three at the moment that you'd want to see, right? Mm. But, but Kipchoge, remember, came from a, track background in fact Kipchoge is probably the classic evolution of a distance run he was a remember he was a world champion at 5000 in 2003 20 years ago as a teenager amazing and then made his debut in the marathon probably 10 years after that and now has kept going in the marathon for another 10 years so what's unusual about Kipchoge is the longevity on the back end not Mm. necessarily on the on the age he started so yeah different different patterns now women's is the same and none of those Helen O'Berry and Hassan, okay, as I say, none of them, I've realized the two winners mm. are, are track athletes who've transitioned. But there are a lot of athletes now who have no track pedigree at all. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's clearly no longer a prerequisite. Yeah, you, you just go straight in and you run a marathon as if it's a 10K. You just, you just figure it out in training and then you go once, twice in the race and you're golden. One of the things I found quite interesting, I did an interview with one of our South African top runners, Gerda Stein, um, just off the Olympics in 2021. And um, she is a very competent marathon runner, but she's more of an ultra distance runner. And uh, she ran a sub 230, I think 225, I think it was. But one of the things that she had to ask herself at a point in the race was, do I go with the surge or do I hold on and make sure that I finish? And when I did the interview with her, I said, do you think that you get to a level in the sport where you have to risk failure to ultimately succeed at the at the max. So in other words, a guy like Kiptum, does he go into the race with the mindset of saying, I'm going to go as hard as I can, I might fail, but if I do succeed, I'm going to be absolutely outstanding. There's two mindsets there. One is I want to finish, therefore I'm probably not going to push myself to the brink of disaster. And there's also the mindset of saying, well, if I don't do well, it's just I'll give it a go next time. You know, there's, 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 there's two mindsets which I find fascinating. And I'd, I'd love to be able to have a chat to people like Kipton and say, like, what is your mindset going into this? Do you go in and run as hard as you can mm. 
going because he didn't have any intention of getting close to the world record. No, he said you can tell that by the yeah. by halfway split. Because if he if he's hungry for that, they'll hit halfway at sixty thirty. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he didn't have any intention. It just happened because no. he was racing. Yeah, <laughs> and that's why I say I wonder if there's something in his psychology that's whole, that that makes him say I'm not going to risk a fast first half. Because he wants to finish super fast. Mm. But he'll have to if he wants. Well, he doesn't even have to. All he's, he's, just run the, yeah. all he's going to do is run the first half 20 seconds fast, well, 30, and then run the second half 10 seconds slower than he did, and he'll still get the world record. Yeah, exactly. But um, but the, but it's quite clear that they do race like that. I mean, you look at the halfway leaderboard in in London, and, mm. okay, Kipton's on it, Camorra's on it, and Tola's on it, top three. But, like, now you've got Amos Kebruto, Bahane Legesa, Leal Gebislassi, we just spoke about, he hang on for fourth. Kinder Atenor, Seyfutura, Kenan Isabekele, none of those guys on their leaderboard at the finish. Yes. None of them. So they've all, they've all thrown their chips in on one. Like, they all said, red 13, go for it. Mm. And none of them won. They all went bust. Mm. So, so they do. It's very much just a go till you blow approach, I think. Yeah, well, I guess yeah. that's the question. Is and, it, and you know, maybe maybe it's different. Someone like Gerda Stein's not on massive appearance money. Maybe none. So her best chance is I have to finish in the top ten, otherwise I'm leaving here with nothing. Mm. A lot of these guys, Bekele and so on, they, they made a paycheck before they started. Yes. So maybe they're willing to risk a bit. But more. she she admits that to, for her to reach her potential as a marathon, she's going to have to risk take failure. That risk. She yeah. has to at some point yeah, to get yeah, to yeah. some yeah. two twenty point. You yeah. do that. Yeah. It's tough because you've only got you've only got. If you do that and, and bomb out, you'll make 30Ks. Mm. So you could do three a year like that. If you do it and hang on to the finish, you've got two chances a year. Yeah. So it's a big risk. It's yeah. a massive risk to take. Yeah. Just to give you an idea of the kind of times we're talking about, um, the Berlin race that Chibet made his debut at in 2016, and don't forget he has a bit of experience behind him, was 20303, which nowadays is a relatively pedestrian time. But mm. that was Berlin in 20. You know, in, in, in 2016. Yeah. No, back yeah. then it was super quick because yeah. there was no shoe yeah. then. Yeah, that no was Trinity Sibikile who won that race in two or three I remember that, yeah. So it shows the benefit of the shoe. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. And then let's just touch briefly just on, on the performance of uh, of Sifan Hassan. I mean, absolutely amazing there. She apparently had to stop and stretch her hip. Well, yeah, yeah. She All the commentators, was, yeah. I mean, yeah. the commentators are saying, well, she, here's a good place to pull out here because mm. there's a hotel here. This is where all the top athletes pull out. And next minute, she's dragging herself back yeah. towards that lead group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a fate accompli by the time she got to the lead group because nobody's going to beat her in the sprint. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing. you know. And as I was watching it, and this race was very similar to the Boston Marathon in the way that it finished. Obviously, Boston lacked... <laughs> an athlete stopping to stretch and the drama with the water tables and getting dropped and coming back. But you had the same pattern or the same um, concept at the end, which relates actually to the podcast we did two back on durability. And so I was watching it, thinking about that and thinking, okay, let me try and revise durability. If you said to those women on the start line, if you intercepted them on the start line, you said, ladies, this race is today going to be two Ks long. Who's winning? 100% time has sent. Mm. Like by mile, by a lot. Mm. Remember, she was a world champion at 1500 and won silver at the last Olympics over that distance. She's like mm. one of the fastest ever. Mm. If you tell them, ladies, it's 5K, who's winning? Hassan. 10K, Hassan. <laughs> so everyone other than Hassan is really comfortable with any change in the race template. So the only, the only chance any of those other athletes, Jeff Chircher and the Ethiopians have, is that they've got to say, okay, at some point, over the marathon distance, I'm 30 seconds faster than her, and then I'll beat her. Mm. 
but they didn't have it on Sunday. They just did not have it. Like, and you can see that in the times because they, unlike the men, were quite aggressive in the first half. One hundred eight forty to halfway, so that's a two seventeen twenty. They finish up running two eighteen thirty, so they ran a fairly hefty positive split by by these standards, right? Mm. But you look at the times. These are the split paces. So this is minutes per k for the last five five k segments. Three fifteen, three thirteen. That was the segment to three thirteen. It was a sixteen oh three five k. That's when Jeb Chirchi went to the front and they got a gap on Hassan, mm. and it looked like she was gone. Then they go three nineteen. She's back. Then they go three twenty five. Now she's comfortable. And then they go three twenty nine, including mm. her sprint. Their last two k was so slow. Mm. By that stage, I, th- I just think the other three were done. Yeah. So then you th- end up concluding, like, how do you beat someone who could beat you over a short distance, who could beat you over five, could beat you over 10, could beat you over 21? It's like mm. she, she's almost unbeatable. I guess the only chance that Paris Chipcheche would have had is by she's, literally she's, digging into her and fatigue resistance. Ex- exactly. And, and, so she's yeah. got to exploit that durability advantage yeah. because yeah. you're going to say, all right, at the start line, 5K, if you if you interrupted this race at 10K and you said, all right, ladies, Two to go. Who's winning? Hassan. Mm. 21K. Who's winning? Hassan. Mm-hmm. The only chance Jeb Cheche and Nazith Evans have got is if you stop that race at 40, it had to be so fast that mm. Hassan had nothing left or wasn't with them. Mm. And I, th- I think to her credit, Jeb Cheche tried. She did, yeah. She I ran think. that 313. Yeah, and tried. then you look what happened to her. 319, 325. Mm. They got slower and slower by 30 seconds every 5Ks. Mm. So, I think they got demoralized well, once they saw Hassan in the back of that league group. They were like, oh, well, they, just, they had yeah. a play and it didn't work, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, so then you say, well, the only way you beat her is Jeb Cheche had to run 217.30. Yeah. And they tried, just didn't have it. Yeah. So, and then yeah. who's to say, before we know, Hassan, without a slight leg niggle, she's going to run 217.32. Yeah. So now you're going to run 216. And then there's only one or two women in the world. Interesting to see if she goes her. back to the track. She's, well, that's her World stated, championships. That's her stated plan. She yeah. said that she didn't even train for this as a marathon. Yes. She said she largely kept her track training going and added some distance. And so her plan very much is... And I would imagine... Remember, this is the athlete who won the 10 and mm. the 5 in Tokyo and then tried to win the 15. Mm. And beaten there by Kip Yagon, mm. who is arguably the best 1,500-meter runner ever in the, in the sport. And uh, if not for her... Hassan would be a triple, mm. like mm. at the level of Zatopek in the fifties. Mm. Still, I, as, cra- as Chip Cheche and yeah. Sapphire would have been, a, I think it's a bit demoralizing when you hear that she hasn't trained specifically yeah, for it because it it diminishes the achievement of the marathon and diminishes her achievement to some extent. Well, it amplifies I wonder if she did train for the marathon specifically, would she be any faster? No, I'm maybe not. Not sure. Maybe. I think tactically she could be, but could she time trial a world record? I don't it's know. always easy to say. Like you'll yeah. be, you'll be so much quicker. So yeah, yeah it'll be. I, I would imagine she'll want to go to the Olympics on the track. Yeah, and then after that, do half a dozen marathons. Yeah, and maybe give it a proper go, and then yeah. and then she'll be in her thirties and so on. I mean, and again, just for the sake of disclosure for listeners, I'm not. I'm not all that trusting of Hassan. She's got the associations with Salazar from the past, and I'm mm. always. There've always been a few question marks about her and the coaching and so on. He's obviously she's not with him anymore. He's not allowed to coach. But again, that's always the fine print, yeah, right. Yeah. But it's really hard to see how you beat her unless you run top two or three time in history. Yeah. 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 So let's move on to the final sort of edition of. of 
ideas here around the marathons. And uh, I was taking a look at so just searching for some information around the marathon shoe wars about Nike versus Adidas and on, of course, Helena Berry running with on shoes in Boston winning those. Of course, massive celebrations there running in a pair of prototypes, which was interesting because I wasn't sure that was allowed. I, I thought the same, actually, yeah. when I heard that. It Interesting. can't be. It can't be approached out because they need to be available yeah, to the public. Yeah, that was the policy so from the AAF, yeah. was World Athletics, rather. Yeah, yeah so I, I, I thought I, I would was, maybe attribute that to misunderstanding or yes. miscommunication by the commentator. Can you buy, you should be able to buy Helena Berry shoes in the shops. Yeah. That's the rule by World that's, Athletics. That's, so. the way I, that's the way I yeah. understood it, too. Yeah. We should just look and see what model she was using. But what was interesting is that um, Sean Ingle, our favorite journalist from The Guardian, mm. wrote a very nice little piece around this whole story about the, the shoe wars. And he's talking back in 2016 when Nike sort of first released their first of their super shoes. Um, it was, you know, Nike dominated. They, they took 30 one of the 36 podiums in the six marathon majors but now um, over the last couple of weekends with Boston and, and London Mon- Monday's Boston Marathon where athletes were wearing their Adidas Adios Pro 3 took the top four places in the men's race and of course we just talked about Helena Berry uh, using the prototype according to this story of that Swiss brand to win the women's event um, so there is a bit of a change and then Jeff Burns who we've interviewed in this podcast before mm. a biomechanics expert and sports physiologist who works for the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee and he was said that Nike is no longer the definitive outright leader I've tested a lot of shoe brands and foams and the running economy benefits are now pretty similar which I guess to some extent is good news for the sport because we are no longer in a position where there is one brand outdoing another on the technology side yeah, so yeah. what we see is probably a leveler playing field. Yes, uh, it's certainly leveler. I'm not. Mm. I'm not. And and I mean, to his credit, Jeff's not saying it's level. He's saying mm. it's more level. Leveler. Right? Was the quote leveler? Yeah. Or closer to being. There's no definitive outright leader. Okay, so that's you <laughs> see that's how a scientist says inconclusive. <laughs> because <laughs> from one scientist still, to another, I'm still not convinced that other companies would catch up to what is Nike's third gen shoe with their first. Mm. Like the big breakthrough comes in one. Then it's incremental in two and small incremental. And eventually you get diminishing returns and you'll plateau the benefit, right? So, of course, Adidas can buy that Nike shoe. They can cut it up and effectively reverse engineer it like On would do, like Asics would do. Mm. But I still think the, 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 the first mover advantage probably puts Nike a tiny bit ahead. But it's no longer definitive. Mm. And that is good news. Like, wasn't the stat in that article 31 out of 36 back in 2019? Yeah, 31 out of 36 podium places yeah. in the so six, six, six majors. Six majors, six podium spots if you think men and women, three each. Yeah, yeah. and like th- only five out of 36 went to anything other than that Nike shoe. Now, okay, Boston was covered by Addy Nike. The women's race had on as the top. And the yeah. two Ethiopians, I think, are usually Nike, right? I think so. Yeah. 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 So Adidas, okay. Adidas did very well in the in the in, in Boston. Boston. And yeah, then of in, course. Yeah. In London, it was a Nike event. Yes. Effectively, right? For sure. Yeah. So we're mm. better off. I, I still think. Okay. So it's recalibrated, like we mentioned a few minutes back. My 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 biggest concern still, and it's just something that's now normal, is that there are definitely athletes who get more than others. Mm. In terms of how they respond to the shoe, yeah, as individuals, right. like there are guys. And in fact, in that article, maybe you'll read that quote from Chris Thompson in a moment, talking about the average, but some people get a lot, other people very little. Kip- Kipton might be a 3 4% guy, in which case he's getting four minutes in a mm. marathon. <laughs> the guy came third. So when he says a 3 4% guy, in other words, he's a, he, he's a 
What did you call it when they react? Su- super responder. Super responder, yeah. there we go. And then you'll get non-responders. Mm. And that's definitely the case. Like if you look at the... I've run those shoes and I'm certainly not a responder at all. <laughs> no faster than I was in the normal <laughs> shoes. <laughs> I think you have to load them at a certain rate, which requires running at a certain <laughs> speed. Because speed. when I'm running them, I feel... You can feel the difference you when you walk You can feel the difference, them, but it makes but no difference know. to my speed. I haven't run them enough yeah, yet. I've got yeah. a pair of the Adidas ones, but I've mm. not run in them enough. Mm. Um and so, so it's possible that some athletes in London got one percent, and and one or two got three or four percent. Mm. So that's a three percent difference as a function of the shoes. So, one of the grand cool experiments would be if every athlete had to put shoes on in the morning, chosen out of a pile uh, randomly, and if you could run in a parallel universe the same race in different shoes five different times, mm. and see see what the what the variance is in a guy's times. Maybe Kipton's a two or three guy. And Gabriel Selassie's a 201 guy in, if they swapped shoes. And that's the problem. Like, as, as I said before, I never watch a tennis match thinking if Alcaraz and Djokovic just swapped rackets, this game would go differently. Yeah. Whereas, unfortunately, with the shoes, I still do. Because mm-hmm. I don't know who's who's responding and who's not to different mm-hmm. ones. And that's why Jeff, I think Jeff on Twitter has advised that if he was an elite athlete, he'd buy five or six and he'd do... A battery of testing every week and he'd figure out which one gave him the best responses because the effect is literally large enough that one shoe might be worth minutes to you and mm. not another one tricky when your sponsors uh, dictate you where exactly. a certain shoe was there was a case study one of the one of the women um had a deal with Sokoni. i remember reading this in outside magazine and then went to a lab and was tested in Sokoni's, the nike the adidas the asics to reassure herself that she wasn't starting at a disadvantage. And mm-hmm. I think in the end, she was equal enough that she was satisfied that this was going to be okay for her. Mm. But it's quite clear from some of the other studies that you, you get athletes who get nothing from some shoes and a lot from others. Mm. So, so it's, part of the, it's part of the talent ID mix now. Yeah, That's the problem. So, yeah. But it's, this is now, at least it's not the talking point. No, it's, but, it's definitely quelled down. It but it confounds be, it. I mean, you say, okay, yeah. a 42-year-old runs two. What, what was the, the Thompson quote? You, you wanted to talk about the aging? Yes. Yeah, so there was a gentleman by the name of British athlete Chris Thompson, who is 42, he said in 2014 he, he ran a, a 2.11. And he turned out that he was, uh, I think, 10th, actually, at London this year. At the age of 42, ran 2.11.50. So he talks and he was quoted in in the story saying there's no shying away from it super shoes have a huge impact on performance i ran 211 and and it is still to this day my most the most emotional painful horrible excruciating thing i ever did but then again he ran that 21150 you know literally 7 years later so he sh- you know he's got no business running that sort of speed at 42 but there he is doing it and he completely gives a credit to the shoes to some extent yeah yeah he does he says He's on average I reckon worth four minutes for a top male in a marathon mm. talks about the benefit is acute and then he also says they also allow you to recover quicker in training I used to run 120 miles a week I've heard of some doing 160 yes. to 170 miles look it's weird that he doesn't say I now do 160 to 170 maybe he's doing 140 now yeah but, but yeah if you can train more that's also interesting because there's been some discussion about whether you can use those super shoes in training because they would have more of an impact. But he's saying you can. Yeah, and quite clearly. I think a lot of the athletes are. I remember hearing that very early on. They've got a very short lifespan. I think the carbon fiber plate loses whatever it is. Mm. One of the researchers said it turns into a frying pan after about a month. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like it's just a dead, it's like a dead spring, you know. 
So he, this was his word. It's an expensive um, dead spring because they're not cheap. Yeah. So this is a sponsored. This is the sponsored fifty <laughs> yes. athletes in the world who are doing that. Yeah. But I had, there was there was some paper, some research published very early on in the months leading up to COVID at a conference in the US where rating of perceived exertion and muscle soreness were all lower when you did a training session in these shoes compared to the, what was then normal back then. Mm. So, and that's that's sometimes the limiting thing. You know, maybe it's ten percent more training. Half a percent better performance, one percent. It's all adding yeah. up, I think. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's, it's just we've just recalibrated it, and yeah. it's almost no point complaining anymore. It no. is what it is. It's just a shame that it is hard. We can't is, look I at think. marathon times of twenty sixteen and compare them to now because we have to. No, there's this massive confounder, for sure, you know? yeah. and that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. So there you go. Well, we hope we've wrapped up uh, the changes, the Kipchoge 2.0, which people are calling it on Twitter and some of the articles I've read. We look forward to seeing what happens with Calvin Kiptum and uh, people like Evans Chibet in the next couple of years and see whether they do end up uh, breaking records and um, beating the great Eliab Kipchoge. Let us know what you think, of course. We're on Twitter on Sports SciPod, and of course our Patreon page is patreon.com and then forward slash science of sport podcast where you can support us, but also get involved in the many discussions which we have on those platforms. But for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.